Would you please join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we come to you, word, asking you to ignite our hearts and that you would capture our wills and direct our steps for the days ahead. That you would teach us this day your will for each and every one of us. And I lift up every individual gathered here this morning, whether it be in person or online, and that you would multiply your grace in each and every one of our lives. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Was well, that time of year as our college students are approaching finals, I, I think of back to that time in my life. And I'm sure some of you look back in that time. Some of us, we got to go way back in the archives, I grant you. <laughs> but remember what it was like to take that big exam that really meant a lot. I mean, it meant a lot. Your future laid on this exam, whether it be a trade or a certification or an academic degree. You stayed up all night. My routine was at 4 o'clock in the morning to make linguine to soak up all the caffeine that I had consumed so I didn't get the heebie-jeebies for the rest of the day. But I arrived at the test, heartbeat a little elevated, laser-focused. I'm going to nail this. I can do this. Lord, help me do this. A little nervous. Well, John, today in his letter in chapter 2, begins the second test of the entire letter, because this is what the letter is about. He's written this, that you may know you're saved. You're assured that you have salvation in Christ and have confidence to live the life he's called us to live. Hence the title, that you may know. And so we get today to the most important tests, really, quite frankly, we'll ever take. And so, my friends, what we have today is an R-rated sermon. R for reformed, reformational truths. Go, which Reformation only existed to bring us back to the first century great truths that salvation is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. We're in this series that you may know we learned in the first week, the first test. And the first test was to make sure we're worshiping the right God. We worship the creator God. The God who was God incarnate in Jesus Christ. He, was, he lived perfectly under the Father. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He rose again on the third day. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father in a place of honor and authority to judge. It's that God in Jesus Christ that we worship and we praise. We just sung his praise. That's the first test to make sure we got this right. And that's the, the Christ that John is proclaiming. And so today we hear the second test. And what we learn today very pastorally from John, we learn about the purpose of his writing the lie that we're all prone, that we're prone to succumb to, and three, the test of a life well lived. First, the purpose of his writing. He writes first, my little children. Do you see here his heart? My little children. 
I write, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. This is coming off of last week's sermon that Cody preached to us. Because the early church, just like today, is falling into the trap of one, living the lie of a false profession. First, the profession that says, oh, I believe this, yet they minimize, reduce Jesus to some other God that looks, quite frankly, like they are, rather than letting, submitting under his authority and his reign and rule. Secondly, there was the lie of claiming to not be sinful at all. You ever met someone like that? Oh, I, I'm not a sinner. Okay, there are people out there who believe that. And it's a lie, according to John. I didn't write this, by the way, all right? I'm just preaching what's here. Because you don't want to hear from me anyway. And three, the third lie that Cody brought out was, oh, I might be a sinner, but there's no visible sin in me. I'm clear. Well, John says, no, you're not. <laughs> and he wound up at the end of that section saying, if we say we have no, but not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He's already said that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgive us our sins, and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, again, back when John wrote this letter, there wasn't chapter 2, verse 1. It was all one letter, so it flows into one another. And so from that purpose, he then begins to write, and the structure is a little difficult because it goes back and forth and back and forth. So I'm going to preach it from beginning with next, chapter, verse 4, because what we see in verse 4 are the lies that we're prone to succumb to, even further exposited for us in John. Because John says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. My neighborhood was a smack-talking neighborhood, and so it became a spiritual gift in my life to smack-talk other guys. And when mom caught me, I literally had my mouth washed out with soap, and not just any soap, lava with pumice in it. And he wasn't messing, all right? You don't call people names, and you especially don't call people a liar. John is trying to get your attention, okay? If we say we know Jesus, and yet we do not keep his commandments we're a liar, and the truth is not in us. John's calling us to examine ourselves. And what I, most people, they're thinking when they hear this, well, how can I make sure I'm right with God? How, how can I make sure that I know God's will? Because, you know, if you think about it, if you're dating someone, you want to find out what that person's will is, what makes them happy, what makes them scared, what makes them mad. Well, how do you know God's will? How do you know you have a personal relationship with God? How can you know you can be saved in order to have a personal relationship with them? How do you know that? Well, this text actually tells us three different ways, and it's really all the same answer. It's very, very complete. It says here how you may know him, you know, verse 4, if you obey his commandments. Then down in verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And then... In verse 6, it says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. 
So those are three different ways of really, quite frankly, all saying the same thing, that we are obedient because we trust his word. It's his word. It's the Bible. And unless you see the Bible as God's word, because that's certainly how Jesus saw it, it's certainly how John saw it, unless you see the Bible as the place where you can find a relationship with God in Christ and God's will, you're going to be a liar. There are many people who say, oh, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I do, but I just can't buy all that stuff in there. You know, there's so many primitive ideas. I believe most of the Bible and the general principles, and I have a personal relationship, but I just can't believe everything that's in it. Well, you see what you've just done when you've done that. When you say there are some things in the Bible are right and some of them are wrong, the only way you can say that is that you have faith at the moment. You're saying that it's some other source of authority by which the Bible, Bible must be filtered through. You're saying as soon as you say the Bible is only partially right, partially wrong, the only way you can say that is that on the basis in some authority, which is always completely right. Always. Friends, you can't doubt everything at once. You can only doubt something from a platform of faith in something else. You see, if you say even one verse of the Bible is incorrect, but the rest are, what you're actually saying is, my discernment, my experience, my reason, my feelings are more sure authority for deciding what a relationship with God is, what the will of God is, than the Bible. So either, and there's nothing in between, either you experience or in your judgment can sit in evaluation of the Bible, or the Bible sits in evaluation of your judgment. Either your feelings are judged by the Bible, or the Bible is judged by your feelings. Either your understanding is judged by the Bible, or the Bible is judged by your understanding. You see, there's nothing in the middle. And when we say we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and yet live it on our terms, we quarantine God, we accept him in this area of my life, but not this. What you're doing is you're lying to yourself. And I want you to see that John is writing to people like us that are gathered on Sunday mornings. He's not writing to the world. This isn't for them. This is for you. And me. Because what we do is we do marginalize him. We reduce him to less than he is. It's kind of like the husband or the wife when the spouse comes home from work. They put the briefcase down and says, recognize there's something wrong. And the spouse says, I want you to hear it from me first. I'm starting to date other people. But I want you to know, and I want you to hear this from me first. You're my best friend. You are so important to me, even though I'm going to be dating other people, I want you to know that you mean so much to me. You matter so much. You're my best friend. Well, even though that sounds kind of, sort of nice, it's actually an insult, isn't it? 
minimizing them to something else less than they are as a husband or wife. And it's no different than Jesus Christ and the way people treat him. When we say we're a Christian, then we're indifferent to his commands or we take away his commands. When I say I'm a Christian and we feel like we're affirming him, but all we're actually doing is insulting him by the way we're living our lives in the community. Reducing him, offending him, because he is God. He is the one who's conquered death. He's risen from the grave, seated right now at the right hand of the Father. He's king of heaven. Hear me on this. People that John have in mind are us, the Sunday morning crowd, who say wonderful things about Jesus, who go on Facebook and repost Christian sayings, who tweet, but yet reduce him to other than king in their lives. How do we do that? Well, let me talk to the generations here. For our retirees, you guys grew up in an age when going to church was normal. Not necessarily out of conviction. You went to church because you should go to church. And the problem could be, for some, that going to church is nothing more than a check off the list. There's nothing in the lively faith throughout the week. And the danger of a prayer tradition is that it feels very holy as we come together and we sing worthy of worship, worthy of praise. And you think, well, this has got to count for something, right? Not according to the Bible. Let's not get caught in our religiosity and we keep it on the person of the king. For our working adults, if you welcome the words of Jesus but keep him out of your bank account, you're minimizing him. When you go along with all the other parents of your kids' classes that all play a travel sport on the Lord's Day perpetually from now to the time they're 18, you're minimizing him. You're reducing him. To our young people, if you welcome the words of Jesus but not on sexuality, you're reducing him. If you welcome the words of Jesus but not on gender, you're reducing him. My friends, he isn't any of those things. He is king. And so we're going to get to the best part of this in a second. But John wants to make sure we know the test. But if we do these things and we don't walk in his commandments, we're liars. And we need our soap, our mouths washed out. But the third point, and the most glorious point of this passage, is John doesn't leave us there. The beauty is that we can know that we have salvation. We can know we're saved. We can have a personal relationship with God. This is the know this test. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And verse 5 and verse 6 make it very, very direct. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way, same way in which he walked. Well, how did Jesus walk? He walked the road to Calvary for each and every one of us. 
And he tells us how we can walk that same road. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's the full surrender. And anything less than acknowledging that reign and rule and surrendering to his will and to his word and embracing and celebrating the coronated Jesus misses him completely. Do you believe in this crucified, resurrected, and reigning King Jesus? It's easy to make him into something of our own making, friends. It really is. To invite him into some areas of our lives and quarantining him in others. That's what I did my entire teenage years, and you never would have known on Sunday mornings. It's hard to welcome him into every area of our lives. And I'm saying that. And I work for him full time. <laughs> All right? I know it's hard. It's hard for us, but please hear me. And I also, also don't want you to follow him under compulsion as Lord. He is Savior and Lord. He's, you can't have one or the other. He's the full package. I want you to welcome him for who John says he is. Look at the second half of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, and by the way, we will. This is not uh, John saying go out and be a perfect follower. He's saying, what's our heart posture? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Look what he has done. He is our propitiation. Propitiation, it's a wonderful biblical word, which means that he on the cross takes all our sin upon him as we place our trust in him, and he exchanges our sin willingly and gives you his righteousness. So that when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's propitiation. And it's a glorious, great exchange that goes on when we place our trust in Christ. It's a matter of the heart. And therefore, we obey out of love for what he's done for us. And not only that, the text says in the, first, in the second half of verse 1 that he's our advocate. Well, you know what an advocate is. It's a lawyer. And we have the best lawyer in the universe. Okay? And here's the great thing. All other religions say, obey, and if you sin, you're sunk. Christianity says, obey, if you sin, you have an advocate <laughs> with the Father, Jesus Christ. You know what that means? God is our defense attorney in Jesus Christ. You know, if you go into court, you don't want your lawyer to look like Peter Falk as Columbo. Right? You hire a good lawyer, you pay him good money, and they got a suit on, they've polished their shoes, they, they're well articulated, they've passed their bar, because they represent you. You don't open your mouth. The lawyer does all the talking, right? That's what John's trying to get to. Everything your advocate does is imputed to you. And as a teenager, I was thinking to myself, 
that Jesus was up there pleading with the Father. Ah, Father, Gene Sherman sinned again. Don't throw him off the cliff this time. You know? Please, Father, one more time for my sake. I used, to off, I used to wonder, how much longer can Jesus keep that up? Jesus, that's not what John is saying. Jesus is not pleading for mercy. Okay? Lawyers only plead and beg the judge and jury when they don't have a case. Jesus is pointing to his atoning sacrifice. In other words, Jesus Christ, the advocate, is standing before the Father right now. And when you sin, Jesus is saying, Father, this sin deserves death. But I have paid that debt. Here's my atoning sacrifice. Therefore, Father, I ask you that you continue to love, accept, and welcome my brother and sister, not out of mercy. I don't ask you to accept them out of mercy, but out of justice. That's the case. Out of justice. I've paid the debt. I've paid for the sin. Therefore, Jesus has the audacity to say, God, it would be unjust of you not to forgive my brother and sister of their sin if you would not continue to love my client. And as a Christian, you have that kind of confidence. Therefore, you see, you don't obey to be saved, you obey to love. And out of the love that's been demonstrated for us in Christ, it's a heart issue. And if Jesus has done that for you, and Jesus is doing that for you, then there is nothing that he cannot ask of you. And when he asks us to follow him, our obedience is filled by a gratitude and a desire to know, know him not out of fear of losing our salvation, but because we have salvation. It means every time God asks you to do something that you think is weird or ridiculous or you don't understand, on the other side of that obedience, it will bring a resurrection in your life that you would never have been aware of until you just obey. And we obey because we owe him everything. It's kind of like the Karate Kid. Remember that movie? 1984, Ralph Macchio, I think. Did I pronounce that kid's name? He played a character named Daniel. Uh, his mom moved to L.A. They live in a grungy apartment. And he's getting beat up by these kids at this Cobra Kai karate school for rich kids, right? And he can't rub two nickels together, but he's got this Japanese neighbor named Mr. Miyagi played by Pat Morita. So, you know, he asked him, hey, Mr. Miyagi, uh, you know karate? Yes, daniel son, I know karate. Can you show me how to be an expert? Yes, I can show you how to be an expert. Show up tomorrow. So Daniel shows up tomorrow morning and thinks he's going to get all these lessons. And what does he get? A paintbrush. That's crazy. All day long. Up and down. He can't go sideways. Up and down. Up and down. Up and down the entire house. Takes all day to paint the house. He says, okay, when are we going to learn karate? He goes, show up tomorrow. Shows up tomorrow. He hands him some car wax. 
and a buffer. You guys know, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. All day. It's getting a little frustrated. Getting a little frustrated. He goes, when are we going to karate? Come back tomorrow. Buff the floor. <laughs> he starts cleaning the floor. He's starting to get a little upset. Rule after rule, day after day, obeying him thing after thing that makes absolutely no sense at all. And he starts to get frustrated with him. And after those hours and hours and days after day, it all comes together. And he's realized what Mr. Miyagi has done is given him reflexes to block, to block, to block. He starts to know the basis of karate. My friends, if he had said, I've had it and walked away, he never would have mastered what the master had in store for him. Well, it's the same for us in the Christian life in God's kingdom. Time in his word, time in prayer, Spending time with God's people, encouraging one another. Following the promptings of the Holy Spirit to reach out to that neighbor. Whatever it is for you, he wants to use us because he wants to make you a treasure. And here's how you can know your heart and your soul is right with God and complete. Here's how you know you can be filled in his love. Look upon his propitiation. Look upon his advocacy. No self-defining, no rationalization. Walk in obedience, following him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have, we have seen John's purpose for us like a loving father who calls us his little children and we see the purpose for this and the lies that we all can succumb to and the call to return to you. This is a critical point, not only in the letter, but in our lives. And we pray, Lord, we would pass the test. And I pray that if we don't understand some part of it, if there's anything that I've said here that's unclear for anyone in this room, that we might not rest until it becomes clear. Help us to see the beauty of the good news of God in Jesus Christ. Help us to see the wonder of it. Help us to see what it means to follow you, obey you, and become your treasured possession. And help us to walk as Jesus walked in what he calls true liberty, which is perfect freedom, Lord. And I pray you would help each and every one of us to find it for in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.